Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CSUS Politics Podcast. I'm Evan here with Abigail, Brian, and Ariana. Today, as always, we'll be starting off with some current events, followed by our main feature about partisanship in America and a great interview with Stanford professor David Brady, all coming your way next. All right, starting off with some updates about the coronavirus. The U.S. is in the midst of one of the most severe coronavirus surges to date. New cases reported on Friday the 23rd were higher than any other date to date, with over 85,000 new cases. 13 states have recorded a higher seven-day average than any other seven days on to date. Outbreaks are scattered all around the country, although there are particularly bad outbreaks in the Midwest in states like North and South Dakota and Wisconsin. In the debate on Thursday, Trump confidently claimed that a number of vaccines were extremely close to being released to the public. However, there's little evidence to support that, they, that we were close to a vaccine. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top expert on infectious diseases, says that the U.S. should consider a national mask mandate. He says that a national mask mandate would, would be difficult, but recommended with worsening condi conditions across the U.S. While most states have some mask rules covering different areas of state of safety, some states, for example, Iowa, have resisted any mask mandates of any sort, even with rising numbers in cases. Fauci also recognizes the argument that if you mandate a mask, then you're going to have to enforce it, and that and that'll create more of a problem. And turning it over to the presidential debate that happened um, on Thursday, the 22nd, at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. The debate actually had a much more uh, civil and normal appearance um, compared to the previous debate that happened. The two battled on six different topics, which were the handling of COVID-19, race in America, national security, climate change, leadership, and American families. Trump, who is currently trailing by double digits in both state and national polls, was in desperate need of a night that would provide a major shakeup for the election. While he needed to be more civil, taking this route also meant that his more subdued appearance probably did not provide this shakeup. Biden continued attacking Trump on his response to COVID-19, as well as another come on man moment after Trump called him a leftist extremist. Trump had some good moments uh, of his own, particularly with his all talk, no action rift, as well as attacking Biden about his disastrous 1994 crime bill. Uh, despite all this, this might not have been enough to provide um, what Trump really needed in the polls as we are nearing much closer to election day. And of course, the November 3rd election is already underway as um, the um, early voting period continues. 50 million people have already cast their ballots, which is more than the entire early voting period in 2016. And that also is over 36% of the number of total vast. cast in 2016. At least 25 million voters have already voted in, battle in battleground states. And among these voters, Democrats have voted early much more significantly than Republicans in an almost two to one ratio. Even though the Republican Party urged supporters to vote early, Trump's disinformation campaign to, disc to discredit absentee voting has likely lessened early Republican turnout. It is still too early, though, to make any real election predictions based on the greater Democratic turnout. And on, and on Tuesday, the Supreme Court ruled that mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania will be counted if they are received three days of Election Day, even if they do not have a legible postmark. On Friday, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that mail-in ballots cannot be tossed out due to signature comparisons. 
Both of these rulings are a blow to Trump's chances in this crucial battleground state. Now for a bit of good news for our fellow Californians. Recent California forest fires have significantly increased the state's CO2 emissions, causing the state to miss its current goal of reducing CO2 emissions to 40% below rates of 1990. However, a nonprofit, American Forests, has been working to replant forests in a way that is much more similar to the ways that forests existed before Europeans settled in North America. They are planting clumps of different kinds of trees, not just pines, that are spaced far enough apart to prevent the spread of wildfires. This also protects the trees from drought. Along with providing habitat for California's rich diversity of wildlife, forests also help to absorb and sequester CO2. In San Bernardino, the organization is providing 75,000 trees in 2020 and 2021 to restore fire-damaged forests in the mountains surrounding Los Angeles and 1,000 and 120,000 trees over the next two years in the burn scar of the 2018 campfire. While COVID-19 has halted many other companies and nonprofits, American Forests has remained hard at work planting trees to ensure California's future. And now on to the main feature of our podcast today. Uh, we decided to focus on partisanship in the United States. We're living in a politically polarized era where partisan affiliation is the biggest factor in the public's political values. A 2019 Pew Research survey found that on average, the partisan gap on 30 of America's issues, such as race, immigration, et cetera, was 39 points. The most polarizing issues were gun policy and race at 57 points and 55 points, respectively. The divide between parties is significantly bigger than those among the party. It hasn't always been like this though as between the 1980s and the early 2000s, no more than a third of Americans said that there was a significant difference between Democrats and Republicans. As we head into one of the most polarized elections in American history, we wanted to explore the roots of this current wave of partisan politics and further understand the factors that were driving this partisanship, as well as the ways that our generation could try and fix it. To do this, we interviewed Professor David Brady of Stanford University. Uh, my name is David Brady. I'm a professor of political science and uh, political science graduate school of business, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and um, at Stanford University. And I've been there a long time. Great. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. Um, so, like we mentioned uh, in a recent Stanford Business article by Bill Snyder, you're cited as describing this so-called sorting process that has taken place in the political parties in America since the Reagan area. Why, why do you think this is? And how do you think that this affects bipartisanship? Uh, so we know, uh, so we know that, uh, I, don't, I wish I could show the graphs, but uh, <clears throat> so uh, from the 1930s on the New Deal, Democrats had a huge lead in party identification. Uh, so say going into 1980, uh, there were 20% more Americans that said they were Democrats than uh, Republicans. But uh, when you looked at that, of people who said they were conservative, and now it's important to point out that I'm not putting some criteria out that says, if you believe this, you're conservative. We just asked them, are you, uh, do you normally consider yourself conservative, moderate, or liberal? And if they say conservative, very conservative, or just, or liberal, very liberal, or liberal. So we're not, we're not forcing that on them. But 40% of people who said they were conservative uh, were Democrats. 
Uh, now, uh, this sort of sorting process started uh, in the 60s with uh, 68 with the Nixon uh, Southern strategy. In the Reagan era, what happened was uh, conservatives, people who self-styled conservatives, uh, started to migrate to the Republican Party. So that if you looked at the uh, parties in the mid 1980, let's say, what you had was a Democratic Party that had some liberals, moderates, and conservatives, quite a few conservatives, and there were conservative Southern senators, so on. And the, and the Republican Party was a party that had uh, quite a few liberals in it. So uh, the first black senator outside of Reconstruction uh, was uh, Senator Brooke from Massachusetts, who was a Republican. But at any rate, what happened as the Reagan policies moved uh, in a conservative direction, uh, and as the Republican Party changed its policy from being pro-equal rights amendment and pro-abortion to uh, pro-life, conservatives migrated to, they are moved, if you prefer, or sorted into the Republican Party and liberals sorted into the Democratic Party, such that today the Republican Party has uh, dominated by conservatives with some moderates and the Democratic Party is dominated by liberals with some moderates. So other than Reagan's move towards more conservative policies, what do you think the main cause of modern partisanship is? Well, once the parties, uh, once the parties sort, and uh, so the Democrats, you imagine if you were a Jack Kennedy and uh, you wanted to pass some legislation, you couldn't just go the liberal route because you had 30, 40 members of the United States Senate who were Democrats and who were moderate to conservative. So you had to have them so you couldn't sort your policies that way. And the same on the Republican side. So you may remember that in 76, you wouldn't remember, of course, you weren't born. But I was in 1976 uh, uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan made his run against Jerry Ford. Uh, it was very close going on the convention floor. And in order to try and get the nomination away from Ford, he nominated uh, a very liberal governor, a Republican governor of Pennsylvania. It didn't work, Ford got the nomination. But the point is when, when the parties have liberals and conservatives in and cross, uh, cross current coalitions, then they can't be as pure. Once they sort out like that, it's just easier to remain. So then we can move on to our next question. Our next question is on the level of individual citizens, how do members of, of the different parties generally perceive members of the other party? <laughs> uh, not, not too well. Uh, a colleague of mine, Shantai Yengar, has shown that uh, at the present time, uh, most, uh, there's very few mixed marriage families now. Uh, and so uh, that research shows that um, if you uh, have Democratic parents and uh, we ask them a question, we say, how would you feel if your son, daughter, uh, et cetera, was uh, brought home or said they were gonna marry a, a Republican? And you ask the same thing of Republicans and you get a good 30, 35% of Democrats and a little lower percentage, about 32%, of, I'm sorry, 30, 35% of Republicans and 32% of uh, Democrats saying they uh, wouldn't like that at all. It would be very unhappy if one of their children uh, married a person of the opposite political party. And, and there's 35, 40% of both parties who think that what the other party believes are a threat to their way of life. So the, uh, 
the at the individual level pullers at the elite levels are the very conservative and the Republican Party and the very liberal and the Democratic Party. They see the other party as a threat to uh, their way of life. So it's gotten worse. Moving on to the next question, we've kind of talked about bipartisanship from the Reagan era to now, um, something that obviously has changed a lot since the Reagan era has been the internet and social media. Um, so how much do you think the internet and the proliferation of social media has affected bipartisanship? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, there's a lot of research on it, and I would say none of it is definitive. I, I would say and, and the reason I say it's not definitive is if you, uh, when I was your age and, and for people quite, a pa uh, quite past uh, that time when I was your age, which is a long time ago, if you, there was an event like the Kennedy assassination or the U.S. Uh, landing on the moon, there were basically three television channels uh, that did that, ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was the technology. And so you had a pretty standard interpretation of events. Uh, that is uh, Walter Cronkite and uh, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley and those guys. The, the, there was just a basic interpretation that all Americans had because that's where they got their news on television. Um, then at some point they changed the fairness doctrine and the doctrine was you had to present each side equally. And when they dropped that, so I'm saying the internet is just kind of a continuation of this. When they dropped that, you began to get uh, spin-off channels like Fox News that could be conservative. You began to get talk radio like uh, Rush Limbaugh or Savage that was uh, just appealing to conservatives. And uh, the reason it worked because you could make money uh, dealing with a much smaller audience. So, uh, and, and what happens when you do that is people then can get in a cone, right? And just hear their side. You can just hear Fox, you can just hear CNN, you can just hear MSNBC. And, and the point is once you're in those cones, you, you don't. And so those happened before the internet. I think the internet surely exacerbated that uh, set of conditions. But I, when I say it's not definitive is because some of it was going on before and it's easy to attribute it all to the internet or to you guys because you're, you're on the internet a lot. But I, I think we don't have the definitive answer on that part yet. All right. So we've talked about polarization in terms of how it affects voters and people and demographics, but how does it affect Washington, D.C. and the way that laws get made? Um, the way it affects politics today is think of, uh, think of, think of the Republicans and uh, what happened with uh, in 20, uh, 2016 uh, when uh, President Obama nominated Merrick, Gar Merrick Garland. In February, uh, President Obama nominated Garland uh, and the Republicans had a majority in the Senate and refused to consider it. And so Graham, the Senator of South Carolina, head of judiciary says, okay, you can hold it against me if this happens uh, when I'm in. And of course it did happen when he's in with a month to go and they've already rammed through Amy Coney Barrett. She's gonna pass and be a Supreme Court justice. Now you could as Democrats will do and rightly so in this case say that's, that's bad. But on the other hand, if the shoe were on the Democrat side, do you believe they do the same thing? And, and that you have to answer that question. But again, this, uh, another example of how that polarization works in politics today is Think of the next stimulus bill. 
well, uh, they want uh, the, the Republicans want a smaller amount, the Democrats want a bigger amount. And uh, you, you would and the American people, I think, are thinking to themselves, well, why, why aren't, uh, why aren't, why don't they compromise on this? Do something, worry about that. But because there's so much at stake, and if you were Nancy Pelosi, just to put the shoe on the other foot from the Republicans, if you were Speaker Pelosi, if Biden gets elected, which it looks like will happen, do you will you get a better deal after Biden's president or now? Well. You get a better deal then, so they wait, and 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 that's what happens to uh, politics in Washington D.C. Yeah, it's hard to cross party lines now because uh, they they put so much pressure on you because so much is at stake. That is, if you don't do this, we'll lose the next election, we'll lose the presidency. So the pressure is really on you to go on. Well, I was going to say it's about winning elections and. Yes. Of putting down markers of policy and not yep. results. Exactly, very good way to phrase it. Okay, great. Um, so talking about your projects, uh, August Project Syndicate article with Michael Spence, um, you guys talk about how Trump's handling of COVID-19 has cost him crucial moderate and independent voters. Um, so in this polarized environment, could you talk about the role that moderates play in elections and the government in general? So when you think about, um, so if you think about, if you total up the votes for uh, Ms. McClellan, any, any candidate for president, let's just take 2016, uh, Mrs. Clinton, her votes can only come from uh, three sources. They can come from people who uh, were Democrats, called themselves Democrats, who voted Democrat, or it could come from Republicans who crossed party lines and voted Democrat. And then there's the pure independents, right? So people who are independent and don't lean, won't lean toward one party. So if you look at uh, those results, uh, over uh, from we have good data from 52 on, and and the results show that about 80, 80, 80 to 85%, but closer to 80 generally, 80% 80 of your vote comes from your base, i.e., people that are in your party. Uh, and the other 20% comes from uh, people who uh, uh, disaffect from the other party or people who uh, are independent and lean that way. So, uh, so, so what happens in that is if you look at Democrats who are likely to vote for uh, the Republican candidate, take 2016, only 80%, 81%, sorry, 81% of moderate, moderate to conservative Democrats voted for Mrs. Clinton seven or 8% voted for Hillary. I mean, voted for Trump. Some didn't, some didn't go, some didn't go, or some voted for Johnson, et cetera. But it was only 81% that voted for. And if you looked at who were the Republicans who bailed and voted for uh, Mrs. Clinton, they were the moderate to liberal Republicans. There are very few liberals, but they're the moderate Republicans. So the role of moderates in this position in each party is, Moderate Democrats are more likely to vote for a Republican candidate, and moderate uh, moderate moderate Republicans are more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. That hurts Democrats a little more because generally there's you know five to seven percent more Democrats than Republicans, so Republicans need to pick up more Democratic and independent votes to win elections. I mean, do you think that we need, is, is quantity of moderates um, a problem? Do we need more moderates? 
Well, I think in the country uh, as a whole, there are a lot of moderates. It's the dominant, uh, dominant political position. Um, and so, uh, well, that would be my view, but that's not, that's not, that's just an opinion or my opinion is not social science. I'm happy to give you my opinion, but I want you to understand it's my opinion. I have no data. I would have no data that my view though is the, the, that the reason that Biden got the nomination was because a majority of Democrats felt that, uh, felt that the uh, platform of AOC and uh, the Green New Deal and free college tuition uh, was not gonna work and that's why they chose Biden. And I think that if Biden wins, as I believe he will, uh, Biden wins and gets in and, and goes too far left, then 2022 is going to look like 2010. But that's probably not relevant to you. When, when you were you guys were born when 2004 or something, 2003? When were you born? Yeah. 2003. 2003. Oh, you were seven years old, so you probably weren't. You probably weren't hanging out like I was watching the 2010 election returns. Well, so in 2010, Obama came in and uh, pushed the Affordable Care Act and then uh, cap and trade stuff. And the result was they lost a whole bunch of seats in control of the House of Representatives. So I do think that, uh, but, but then on the other hand, uh, this time around, Biden was there in 2008, 2010, knows what happened. So did the other Democrats. So I, I don't think that will happen. But I, I do think if you get too far left or too far right, then, then, then you, you suffer electoral defeat in the next election, by election at least. Um, and the next question, whose responsibility um, is it to, I guess, bridge this gap and fix the problem of polarization in this country? Because obviously it is affecting how- You, have, our you guys have a mirror there? Hold Bridget. a mirror up. It's, it's on you. Uh, I, I don't think uh, my generation is, uh, it's too old, too old for that. Uh, so yeah, I'll just give you the answer. T.S. Eliot has the answer. The poet, right? He says, "We're gonna mend old coalitions. We cannot change. We cannot mend old coalitions. We cannot. Um, uh, we cannot follow an antique drum. These men and those men who oppose them and those who oppose them accept the constitution of silence and are folded into a single party." That means my generation and the generation behind me seem too far along these lines to really uh, expect much change. So I, I think you really, in the next uh, in the next two presidential elections, you're going to have people come in who are in their 30s and 40s and much closer to your age than they are to mine. Do you think that politicians, current officials on, you know, on Capitol Hill or even in local politics have a responsibility to do what they can in office to fix this now? Or do you think that this is a problem that will really be kind of fixed by younger generations stepping up into politics more? Well, I think, uh, I think, they, uh, I think they should fix it, but I, I don't think the incentives are there for them to fix it. Uh, they, once, once the stakes are so high, Everything, everything seems so close. The pressure, take, uh, take Senator Collins from Maine, who I uh, genuinely think is uh, pro-choice. Uh, she voted for Kavanaugh and there was unbelievable pressure on her to do so uh, because hers was the deciding vote. And think of on the Affordable Care Act, it came down to John McCain and the decisive vote is cast by a guy who had like a month left to live. So, under the present 
politics is a lot about circumstances and uh, you know where you sit, and, and so there's a lot of problems with money in politics. The the uh, money in politics causes uh, state legislators who are liberal or conservative to run. Moderates uh, don't get the money to run. So uh, I don't see I don't see without any major changes in the incentive structure of this generation doing it. So I'm afraid uh, I'm, I'm better, better your generation than mine. Okay, and kind of going off of that, uh, if this problem persists of uh, polarization and partisanship, where do you see the state of American politics in the future? So for example, a decade from now or beyond that? Well, so there's two, there's kind of two theories. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, the kumbaya theory that some candidate comes along and we all hold hands, sing kumbaya, and we all, it's great. Uh, and what could cause that? Well, 9 11. It's just one uh, last thing on a, on a closing note. Um, what would you say? You mentioned that you think, right, it's basically up to our generation to try to bridge this gap. Um, what would you say to members of our generation? Um, I guess, I ha what, what guidance would you give to us to do that? Uh, well, think about government and, and, and don't, and don't, and uh, so look, a lot of, uh, a lot of adults and a lot of college classes these days are very, um, they're very ideological. And what I would say to you is uh, what I used to say uh, in my American government classes, I, I don't care what you think. You're gonna be a lefty, a righty, a centrist, doesn't matter to me. What I wanna know is can you think? So when people propose policies, uh, draw a line down the sheet of paper and say, what are the costs, what are the benefits? And think hard about what are the costs and the benefits and whether the trade-offs worth it. And uh, across a whole set of issues, what are the ones you want to deal with first? So I, I think uh, the main thing would be uh, think hard and uh, do uh, cost-benefit analysis, cost-benefit, not just economics, but the politics of it, how you would do it. Think about hard and then, and then, uh, and then know what your values are before you go in. Don't, don't let your values be determined by that. Just whatever your values are, think hard about, can you get this? And if you could get it, is it worth it? Thank you again to Professor Brady for this interview. We definitely learned a lot. What was especially interesting was the history of partisanship in America as it started off as a practical tool to win elections, but it has turned into something that the Democratic and Republican parties have weaponized in order to win elections. Simply put, they are focused on beating their opponent's party and not about creating policy to help the American people. And this goes from the federal level all the way to local government. government. On the federal level, votes almost always fall along party lines with with representatives voting allegiance to their parties over the best interests of their constituents. Yeah, Professor Brady definitely talked a lot about how um, politics have transitioned nowadays towards uh, you know, standing at ideological goalposts instead of compromising for, um, for the best interests of the American people. An example he talked about um, that's really important and quite poignant right now, I think, is the stimulus bill. And um, I think not only because of its importance, but also because of the practice of both political parties, really, for jamming in extra incentives 
um, or extra goals of theirs into bills that are completely unrelated. There have been a lot of hold up in terms of in terms of uh, getting these really important measures passed through Congress. And a lot of that is because of the unwillingness for the parties to compromise and because they're so focused on ideological goals. Younger, and I thought it was also interesting how Professor Brady uh, mentioned how the younger generation will play a big role in partnership in the future and how we should all use our, our new tools of technology like the internet to kind of help create and not divide us more. And he talked about how in the past where, um, you know, someone could easily be manipulated because there were only a couple of channels of TV and that all they saw on TV was what they kind of believed in. But now we have so much more and it's really easy to kind of fall into this bubble of news that we look at or, or things that we believe in because um, it's easy to see other people believe in those types of things. Um, but I think that uh, if we all use, uh, utilize these tools effectively that we can help uh, work together more. Um, so more on to how our generation might be able to make bipartisan go away. We talked a little bit with Professor Brady about sort of the more natural political processes, um, like sort of a swing one way where the other party has to mold um, to the, the dominant party um, in order to like gain enough votes again. Um, that was one of the ways that he said, but I, I don't know. I personally feel like we have to be more proactive uh, we have to be very proactive about this, our generation. Um, well, I think there are ways that we can use the tools that we have to, to further uh, bipartisanship. We can use the internet, a tool that can create partisanship uh, in some instances, although as we discussed, it's not 100% proven, but we can use tools like that because of its power and because of its wide reach uh, to find similarities and and recreate an American identity that fits with the 21st century, that fits with the constant improvement and constant movement of our modern culture. Um, personally, I think this might be one of the only ways that lawmakers of our generation can be more focused on bettering the daily lives of Americans rather than just you know, furthering the party goals or focusing on ideological, you know, stakes in the ground instead of the kind of overarching goal of government, which is a better life for all people in America. Um, I think I agree with Evan, a lot of the work needs to be proactive. You know, we need to, to look at the state of political discourse now and, and think to ourselves, what new American identity can we create so that this doesn't get any worse? Thanks for listening to the pod. And make sure to come back next week for the next group's podcast.